Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Inanu, and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 41st Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing Hell of a Book by Jason Mott. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and I promise I won't call you Dollface. Across the table from me is... I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and my favorite Nicolas Cage movie is Moonstruck. And across the table from me is... Hi, I'm uh, Trevor from the uh, Louis Real Library, and if your bingo card had a Nicolas Cage cameo appearance, well done. <laughs> <laughs> a good book can carry me away from an ever-engined We wouldn't do this without you. Do you hear invisible people telling you about books? Don't stress. You're just listening to a podcast and forgot you have your earbuds in. We're totally real, and you can get in touch with us and tell us what you think of the books we're reading. You can find our email address and all of our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Hang around until the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Before we dig in, let's do a quick check-in with the panel. How are you guys doing? I am nodding, like you can see me nodding. But I'm... it was your nod was really just for my benefit, <laughs> yeah. and maybe Dennis's. Yeah, yeah. I can interpret that by saying I think Toby's all right. That is correct. I'll tell you something. I uh, just finished reading the uh, new Colson Whitehead book. It was called Crook Manifesto, and when I started it, didn't realize, although I should have realized this, that it was a direct sequel to his previous book, Harlem Shuffle. Mm-hmm. It's such a direct sequel that many minor characters appear without any explanation, because you're supposed to know who they are from the first book. Now, I read the first book, not knowing that it was going to be the first part of a trilogy, so I enjoyed it thoroughly, but I did not pay the level of attention I should have to get the most out of it. So when I finished Crook Manifesto, which I enjoyed, it was the two towers of the series, obviously. It had to end on a cliffhanger. I went back and I read Harlem Shuffle, and I enjoyed Harlem Shuffle even more now, having read Crook Manifesto, but I'll tell you what, I now want to read Crook Manifesto again. And I feel like I've gotten myself into a Colson Whitehead like uh, loop. loop where I'm not going to be able to get out of these two books. Kind of like those people who all they read is like the Narnia series. And when they get to the end, they start over. And so I'm a little worried that I'm, I'm going to need something to break me out of this. And not that I'm complaining because they're both excellent books. But I'm a little worried now that I've done something to myself. There are people who just read the Narnia series in, in a loop. Yeah, is that a thing? Or, or like, or like people who like their book clubs that they only read like Jody Pico books. Or mm-hmm. yeah, I'm pretty sure that whole Narnia <laughs> thing is a, is a thing. They're, yeah, that's... we'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, and but there's no need to Google that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just finished The Circle, which is Katerina Vermette's newest book, and is the third book in her series about the stranger family and similarly it's not they're not really series they're just like a companion books they feature the same characters so kind of related well i was also uh not to monopolize our check in time but very excited by the time this episode comes out we'll be very close to october 11th and on october 11th wednesday at uh, 7 p.m our next tales at night library program will be happening at the uh, goodwill social club 
our friends there uh, have been very generous with their letting us do our Tales at Night there over the last few years. And this one will be our Halloween one. And it's always my favorite one because we get to read spooky stories. And sometimes people come dressed up in uh, costumes and stuff. And I'm kind of looking forward uh, to reading some spooky stories. And I'm also super interested because they have a new restaurant next door called Primo's Deli. And for those who haven't been to the Goodwill Social Club, when I say next door, you don't actually have to go outside. You just kind of go to the other side of the place and there's a restaurant. And this is apparently get sandwiches. You get what you would get at a deli. And so I'm super excited to eat food from there and uh, drink some beer and read stories and listen to stories. Excellent. And maybe do some karaoke after. You know what? I just may. I have a couple songs that I'm thinking about. Karaoke comes on after Tales at Night. And, uh, and Toby, you came just as a, as a guest last time. You were not in, in any official library business. You were there and uh, you, you brought a friend that had a, a keen interest in REO Speedwagon. No, Foreigner. Foreigner! <laughs> I, was I mean, I can be forgiven for getting that wrong. Uh, yeah. So maybe you guys want to come again. I'm not saying. Dennis, I don't know. No, not to put you on the spot. I know you don't go out at night, but you know, you might enjoy it. You might be celebrating, you know, uh, you know good times. Never know. Yeah, well, we'll see. Well, well, we hope to see the listeners. If you don't want to leave your home, you can also go to uh, the, uh, what is it called? Staff Staff Picks Live? Next Page Live. Something page like that. Live. Yeah, okay. here's, a, here's a marketing uh, tip, uh, Toby. You should know the name of the program. <laughs> yeah, I should. Um, it's October 23rd at 630. It's uh, on Zoom. And myself and some other library staff are going to be recommending some books. And Sounds great. Is there a theme to it? Um, yes. <laughs> uh, and Toby co- knows it. <laughs> yes, I do know but it. But she doesn't um, want to spoil it for you. Cozy something and maybe a little spooky? Cozy something. and spooky. Yeah, something like that. Mm. Something like that. Sounds good. Yeah. Like a werewolf in a recliner. Yeah. 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 A rougarou. <gasps> um, so... You don't need a library card. You don't need to live in Winnipeg. Yeah. Yeah. Those sound like a couple of fun things to do. Yes. That sounds good. And so we're going to jump back into the book now with our usual warning that there will be spoilers. Toby's going to tell us about the author. And then after that, Trevor will give us a summary of the book. All right. Um, Jason Mott. Not a lot of information out there about Jason Mott. I'm always surprised when I start researching an author and there's really not that much about them personally it feels like in this age i should be able to know like what he had for breakfast and who his childhood best friend was but no such luck so this will be brief so he was born in bolton north carolina Uh, he was an avid reader from a young age his mother would drop him and his sister off at the library while she ran errands do not do this now Uh, supervise your children while in the library please he loved mythology and folklore at 14 he discovered the book grendel by john gardner it's a retelling of beowulf and of this book he says i didn't know writers were allowed to take existing stories and make them their own it was wonderfully exciting to learn that's when i started writing he attended cape fear community college cape fear not just a 90s thriller and also the university of north carolina wilmington where he received a bfa in fiction and an mfa in poetry His first published works were poetry, first 2009's We Call This Thing Between Us Love, followed by Hide Behind Me from 2011. The latter is an examination of comic book archetypes and questions of morality, mortality, love, and especially the eternal quest by humans for heroism in the everyday. 
His debut novel, The Returned, was published in 2013. It was a New York Times bestseller and adapted for television under the name Resurrection. It aired for two seasons on ABC. His second novel, The Wonder of All Things, was published in 2014. His third novel, The Crossing, was published in 2018. And his fourth and most recent novel, Hell of a Book, was published in 2021. Hell of a Book won the National Book Award. And it appears he just released a horror short story. It's called Best of Luck, and it came out a couple of days ago on Amazon. He continues to live in southeastern North Carolina, and he is a big fan of Nicolas Cage, and not just in an ironic way. Mm-hmm. So I'll fully admit that this summary is taken from the publisher's website. I, uh, I read it out. And if anyone has any comments or questions, I'm happy to answer them. In Jason Mott's Hell of a Book, a black author sets out on a cross-country publicity tour to promote his best-selling novel. That storyline drives Hell of a Book and is the scaffolding of something much larger and urgent. Since Mott's novel also tells the story of Soot, a young black boy living in a rural town in the recent past, and The Kid, a possibly imaginary child who appears to the author on his tour. For while this heartbreaking and magical book entertains and is at once about family, love of parents and children, art and money, it's also about the nation's reckoning with a tragic police shooting playing over and over again on the news, and with what it can mean to be black in America. Who has been killed? Who is the kid? Will the author finish his book tour? And what kind of world will he leave behind? So how do you guys find it? Well, this book's tone was, wasn't consistent, I would say. There was a lot going on in it. <laughs> uh, I wrote a blog post promoting this book last month, hmm. uh, as I usually do, and Toby has done and will, will share. And I, I made the mistake, if you want to call it a mistake, of of writing the blog post based on just me reading the first couple chapters. And so I was describing this book as like, oh, it's a madcap, a laugh a minute, uh, <laughs> you know, hilarious, you know, delightful story. And, you know, I, I could be forgiven maybe after the first couple of chapters, but then it goes in different directions. And I'm happy to talk about those directions uh, with you guys. That's sort of my take. It, it, it presents one way and maybe goes another way and then maybe comes back. I like that. I get that. I'm still unsure how I felt about this book. I liked it. While I was reading it, someone asked me what it was about, and I didn't know what to tell them. Like It, it was really hard to um, to talk about. I think it's really unique. I've never read anything quite like it, and I think it deals with a really important issue. But I just, I kind of need more plot from a book. I need something to like really grab me. And then I also just... I found it a bit repetitive in its themes, a, a bit didactic, I guess. This book has a lot of things that I like. My favorite type of book in the world, or my favorite type of story, is the story of people who are overwhelmed by the world. It connects with me. I, I feel that. And to me, this was a book like that. The narrator, who is so overwhelmed by his own history that he has a condition, an imaginative condition where he can't always distinguish between what's real and what's not, and who has forgotten very basic things about himself, like that he's black, which is, you know, a moment in the book where someone's asking him why he's not writing about the black condition. He's like, why would I do that? And I said, because you're black. And he's like, I am. I find a lot of stories that are hard to talk about often benefit from an air of unreality, thinking specifically of uh, like Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, 
which was kind of referenced by the way that he dropped the so so it goes phrase early on in the book or a catch 22 by joseph heller which he also referenced by calling something a catch 22 and it's something i remember reading about or hearing about in reference to like star trek back in the day like in the 60s they had an episode where they went to a planet and the there were two warring factions and when kirk got them together these people had like they were black on one side of their face and white on the other side of their face. And they were asking him why they were fighting. And he says, well, this person is uh, black on the right side of his face and white on the left side. And I'm white on the right side of my face and black on the left side. And so it was about fighting over race. But because it was a ridiculous sci-fi thing, it got past a lot of people's filters. And they only realized towards the end what it was about. So I felt like this book was like that. It was a book that did some uh, incredible comedy stuff and then went off in different directions and did a lot of unreality stuff so that it could talk about something that's difficult to talk about. But it lured you in by being kind of wacky and funny at the start. And, uh, you know, that was, that was kind of my overall view of the book. It, it had those elements, the overwhelming nature of the world and specific things specific to uh, the author and uh, their experience. So I liked all that. It was a little uneven, I think, in parts, but uh, my overall impression of the book was very positive. To me, it had a very uh, almost like cinematic feel to it, like that first scene when the author is running down the hallway in the hotel and, mm -hmm. and he's naked and he's getting away from this jealous husband who is trying to chase him. And there's the old lady standing by the elevator and then he just stops and, and he says, Oh, I should introduce myself to me. I, I saw that as a movie of a, like sort of like being freeze framed mm -hmm. and, and then like the voiceover narration and then starting up again. And, and there were other scenes that I could really visualize. So it's interesting that in your biography, Toby, that he was a, a poet uh, his background because to me i was thinking oh this guy's a screenwriter hmm. because uh, i just felt like everything was so well laid out and the and the the comedic timing like one, one, one of the funniest scenes i thought was when he's describing it seems like all of his girlfriends are named kelly <laughs> yeah. uh and he's on that one date where she has him up to her place uh to make supper and she talks about how she just hates guys who tell her what to do and and, and then and she's she's heating the the oil in the frying pan and he's thinking I think that oil's a bit hot, but he realizes like <laughs> I can't be one of those guys that she hates, and he's like, I don't know. And then and then the next scene is they're standing outside, and the whole apartment is in, engulfed in flames or whatever. I mean, things like yeah. that. Like I loved, and uh, and then the tone shifts, of course, with the storylines with with Soot growing up, and uh, yeah, it weaves in this this really poignant narrative. But before it gets really serious, I, I think we. I would agree that that first chapter is probably one of the most wholesome things any one of us have ever read about about little uh, Soot thinking that he's invisible mm -hmm. and his parents talking about, mm -hmm. oh, you know, what are we going to do? Uh, maybe we can have all of his favorite foods. And, and he's sitting there. He's just all, you know, and I'm just like, man, that is cozy. Yeah. Except for the whole, like, if you're unseen, you're safe, you know, <laughs> the, right. safe, the safe and unseen bit of that uh that scene well that was the whole undercurrent though that's like one of the messages of the book or one of the things that he repeats many times is about how parents always have to have that talk with their kids when they're black that at some point you gotta you gotta sit them down and tell them when the cop comes you keep your hands on the wheel and uh you know you say yes sir no sir you uh you don't do any sudden movements things like that and how that's such a heartbreaking thing to do and then, like, later on in the, the story, he's also mentioning about how his dad had that uh, hands-up game. 
mm-hmm. you know, where he'd say, hands up, and he'd lift up his hands, and he'd, like, pull off his sweater, and it's like, good job, and just getting him used to raising his hands as fast as he could every time he heard the phrase, hands up. And it's like, yeah, they managed to... They managed to do everything they could to try to shield their son from the realities of the world. But, yeah, when you see it and you're looking at it and you know what they're doing, it's like, oh, geez, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, at one point there's the line referring to suit as the bonsai of a child, um, which I really liked. It was, you know, this idea of just, like, trimming away the possibilities and stunting the growth. And, you know, Mm. you can only take up so much space. And that really, uh, that really stayed with me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The differences in tone really make for an interesting experience when you're reading it. Like, this is the most unreliable narrator that you can have, right? And a, a narrator who says himself, I don't know what's real. It was like when he got to that scene where they, he was doing the, uh, the book club thing in Denver. No, it wasn't a book club. It was that thing where he was meeting. Oh, the media trainer? No, no. no. It was part of his book tour, and he just started going on about how you can't expect me to keep talking about my book. Oh, and, yeah. That was right. like, a, like a talk show or something. Yeah. Like a, yeah. And it yeah. was only like two minutes into the interview. He thought he was there for an hour. Is that, is that yeah. And yeah, he, it was and like he thought right he had just end. finished the interview, yeah. and it's yeah. like, no, no, it's just starting. It's like, you can't expect. We just talked about it. And he has a breakdown right on stage. Yeah. And uh, reading that and thinking, okay, is this a real breakdown? Or is this like he's imagining a breakdown? What's actually happening? And then later on, it seems like, oh, yeah, it was a real breakdown. He just uh, he just toasted his uh, book tour. That was the thing, too, because like he kind of tries to let himself off the hook at the very beginning by saying that I don't know what's real and what's not. And I have an active imagination and I have an, like an overactive imagination. So that, yeah, as you're reading this, yeah, I, I have a hard time kind of connecting to many of his escapades because I wasn't sure what was real and what wasn't like the breakdown thing. Was that something that was happening in his head? Was it really happening again? Yeah, I think, I think it did because then there were the repercussions where his, his agent said, I I can't work with you anymore. And, Mm -hmm. and he was stranded in the the Denver airport being freaked out by all the uh, Masonic imagery. And it was interesting. Like I, I, uh, I heard Jason Mott in, in an interview, he was being interviewed by a couple of, um, well, it's a British interview, and he was talking about, in his opinion, black writers are often pigeonholed into writing just about three main things. He said black writers are allowed to write about slave narratives, civil rights fictions from the 60s, or urban ghetto coming-of-age stories. And so he felt like he wanted to intentionally go out and write something that wasn't any of those things, right? something that was totally kind of like his character in the book, not black, yeah, isn't it interesting that the story that he came up with was about police violence and race and color in America and not just one story, but it, over and over, like it, the, it's, it's the book's DNA mm-hmm. as much as he tried to make it something else. It's, yeah. Yeah. I saw another interview with him too, where he was saying that like, he didn't really want to write a story like this. He was hoping someone else would write a story kind of the way that he would write a story like this. And it's just, it didn't happen. And at some point he thought, I guess I have to write it then. One of the things that got me in this book is at one point he starts listing people who, uh, you know, who were killed by police violence. And then he says, and whoever else this has happened to between the time I write this and the time you read it. Mm-hmm. That's one of my tabs. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And uh, it reminded me of, and I can't even remember if it was this year or last year, uh, which is disturbing. But I came into work one day and my boss goes, hey, did you hear about that shooting in the U.S.? And I said, you're going to have to be more specific. 
And she said uh, that one where, you know, a black person went to a white neighborhood by mistake and got shot by the homeowner. And then I had to say again, you're going to have to be more specific because mm -hmm. by the time she asked me, there had been three stories like that in just a couple of days. And they were, they all had big similarities, but in the end, it was a white homeowner shooting at black people because, and the black people were just there because they had turned down the wrong street and they didn't realize they were in the wrong neighborhood. Yeah. I think we all like we're all super familiar with these narratives of violence in the U.S. and how dangerous it is to be a black person doing anything in, mm -hmm. in America. But more than anything, more than all of those news stories, more than all the the journalistic pieces I've read about about it. It's like this this book really hammered home for me the absurdity of being a black person in America where you can't, you're not safe doing anything. Like you're not safe walking yeah. down the street in the day. You're not safe walking down the street in the night. You're not safe in your own house. You're not safe in your own bed. You're not safe. No matter what you do, like you're, there's yeah. always the possibility that you could just be shot. And that's despite doing all the correct things, yeah. right? Like was it Sutstad who told the police officer, yeah, there's a gun in the car, which <laughs> is just like, was it Castile? It's like an like an open carry kind of situation. Yeah, that was well, that, that was just, Sid's uncle, I think, wasn't yeah. it? When yeah. he was pulled oh, over. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. that was the yeah. uncle. But again, like it's an example. Like we can't even remember which incident it was because there were several instances in the book where police are stopping and yeah, interrogate. So yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. It, but and they also just reflect actual news stories that we have all read. Yeah, like, uh, like Sid's dad was jogging in his own neighborhood, you know, mm -hmm. on his own front step, virtually, and uh, that was a story that. Again, you know, none of these stories are not fiction. No, and he couldn't make up anything that would be worse than what we've already read. Like yeah. it's that's that's just it. It's the tapestry. It's the underlying thing. It's the thing that the author hates so much that he won't think about it and tried to avoid talking about it. Or the author is character. I mean, not the author. Author. <laughs> it's a little awkward when the author is writing about an author. And we don't know the author's name in the book. I know. He intentionally left it blank, mm -hmm. which was interesting. The writer, the kid in suit, they're all the same character, right? Well, are they? I mean, I to I think so. I mean, the suit is the childhood of the writer. And the kid is kind of the, I mean, at one point he's described as the pigment of an entire nation. You know, the ghosts of all the black children or people who have been murdered. I mean, I feel like it's really kind of a father, son, and holy ghost thing. It's like this triad of people <laughs> yeah, who are nice all yeah. the same character. It's one entity, you know? Well, I think there was a part where he actually said, where he was talking about whether the kid was soot. Like, because he called the kid Soot at one point, and he's like, how did you know my name? Oh, really? I think I missed that. Oh, it was towards the end. Mm -hmm. uh, it was one of the conversations he was having with the kid, and uh, and he called him Soot. Well, both the kid and Soot are both described as being extremely black, and so yeah. Yeah. And certain, automatically we're going to connect those two well, together, right? Certain things happened to both of them at five years of age mm -hmm. and at ten years of age. And uh, at one point, and it might be this part of the conversation where he's ha having it with the kid, he says something. No, it wasn't where he was having a conversation with the kid. It was afterwards where, you know, the kid, the kid's walking down a street at night and uh, he gets stopped and asked and then he ends up getting shot. He says something like, and it doesn't really matter which one it is. In one instance, 
the kid dies and there are protests. In the other instance, the kid survives and he grows up to write books. And so he's kind of saying, you know, it's like, yeah, this is all vague and weird, but it's also because it happens so often that there's just little changes that happen between person to person and it changes maybe how they, how the future unfolds, but the events are so common that uh, this could be anybody. Uh, and that theme, I think, carried on to when he was at that book event in his hometown and he looks out and he sees Soot's mother or his mother. But is it? Because quite often it'll say the woman who is and isn't my mother or the person who looks like my mother but isn't or the person. And then but then before that whole scene, he has a scene where he's talking about Soot's mother who looks an awful lot like his mother. I and, think it's, it's that whole dream yeah, thing, you know, yeah, where you have a yeah. dream and it's like this is Dennis in my dream, but it didn't look like Dennis. Yeah. But I knew intuitively yeah. that it was yeah. Dennis. And that, yeah, and that you could change the names, you could change the faces, you can change the identities, but the stories, the experiences, they're, they're universal, uh, but growing up black in America and then either you get shot or a loved one gets shot in front of you or you're living in fear of getting shot. Those are kind of the options there that we're presented with in this book. It was hard to square that with the really funny scenes, you know, like I, I still like the really funny scenes, but I was sort of like, do they belong here after reading to the end of the book? And I guess that that's maybe the point that he's trying to balance out these, these tones because he's very deliberate in that his, the current day, the voice of the author, he's this kind of devil may care dude. That's just like <clears throat> all about, you know, alcohol and women. And he's, you know, obviously trying to, um, what's the word? Um, cope. Escape. cope, escape. Yeah. From the reality, like, you know, by forgetting, and by trying to, to to cloud his reality with all these these distractions, right? Like he, yeah. in the beginning of the book, for, he doesn't even remember he's black. He doesn't remember what the book is about. Every time they ask him, he kind of just goes into this kind of fugue state, you know, where and then he, yeah. people will say, oh, it's a hell of a book. He's like, yeah, it sure is. Uh, and um, what's it about? Wish I knew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then when it gets to the part where he actually says it's about the death of my mother. Right. Right. And that's like, I don't know, two thirds of the way through the book, something like that. The first time you ever get a sense of what the book is actually about. Yeah. It, I think it comes even later than two thirds. Like yeah. I would be. say almost maybe in the last like quarter of it when he has an encounter with his mom slash Sut's mom slash his mom. Yeah. I also found really interesting how he had two monologues essentially from white police officers there was the one who he meets as the author who he doesn't recognize, right? right? The guy's like, can I talk to you? I need to talk to you. Can we go someplace? You know, and he's not sure what's going on. The guy's like, the guy wants him to write a story, right? Yeah. 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 Which is right. The weirdest thing, right? Yeah. But it's also like he's trying to articulate how that person might feel. And the most almost sympathetic way. It was oddly sympathetic. Yeah. yeah. And it, it felt like, you know, you can, you can straw man a person's opinion where you say, Oh, I want to do this because I'm cruel and you guys are nasty and I'm going to just be mean to you. But he didn't do that. He's like, mm -hmm. he put up the whole rationale. It's like, we grew up in the same place. I'm poor. You know, I was poor too. Our family is poor. 
Uh, I wasn't a slave owner. You weren't a slave. Like, you know, the, why do, am I feeling guilty about all of this stuff that happened that I didn't have anything to do with? And I'm just trying to, I'm a good father. I, you know, he, he, all these things. And he's like, I don't want to be judged by like the worst minute of my life. And that's but, when all the slave ghosts show up in the field after yeah, he leaves. Yeah. yeah. Also that line though, I don't want to be judged by the worst minute of my life. I think that was the line that, uh, Brock Turner's dad used in defending him when uh, he, when he raped that unconscious woman um it's like you shouldn't be judged on the worst uh, like the worst decision like the one minute and it's like yeah but what was that aside that victim wrote a great book called know my name but chanel miller is her name yeah Yeah, and i don't even know if he was intending to refer to that but that phrase just stuck out at me as like you you can't judge me on the worst minute of my life and but it was still it was the most sympathetic one. And the other one was the officer that was intimidating Soot's uncle. And he was like, you know, you're going to spo- uh, ruin that man's life. He's got a family. He's got, you know, uh, you, you, you people are just going to ruin our lives. And we deserve the, our lives. We deserve these things. We don't deserve to have bad things happen to us, to be exiled, to be punished. That was not a sympathetic no. one, though, because he had a gun in the uncle's gun, back yes, during know, that speech. Yeah, No, that was a lot less sympathetic. That was, But that was like pure terror, like mm. be, having someone do that to you. It's just pure terror. You've already been traumatized and damaged, and now it's just worse. It's like, oh, yeah, you're just going to take it, though. Otherwise, you know. And that's a scene also where Suit disappears, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. Which uh, leads to trouble for his uncle, more yeah. or less. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Going back to what you were saying, though, I think the the humor was a consequence of him trying to escape the memories and the the trauma of the past and all those coping mechanisms. And so as a result, things get ridiculous. Things are absurd. It's totally absurd what happens to him, the the different escapades. It's absurd, right? But it's a consequence of trying to cover up this internal struggle and, and trauma and any, is any of it real? Like, it could all be in his head. Like, the whole running naked down the hotel hallway and the, the media trainer bit and that thing he was talking about with his call center job and the group that came and, like, <laughs> right. threw candy at people. Like, who knows? <laughs> the culture people. It, yeah, there. it yeah. might yeah. all be yeah. in his head. Apparently, he did work in a call center. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that too. So. Yeah. In another interview, they asked him, like, how much of this is real? And he, I mean, what can you say? But he said... Like 60 to 70% of the book happened to him. But I mean, whether it happened to the author, Jason Mott, or whether it's happening to the author, no name blank of the book is left up to be decided by, I guess, us reading it. Uh, It's interesting, too, like right at the very beginning, the author, the unnamed author, wants the reader to remember that this is a love story. Mm -hmm. He says, remember that. That's Mm -hmm. important. And I I listened to him. I remembered it. I tried Mm -hmm. to keep thinking, now, when is this going to become a love story? Is it the love for his his family, his mom? Is that what makes it a love story? Or is it because the book that he's promoting in Hell of a Book is also called Hell of a Book, which also Mm -hmm. adds another layer of meta grayness to the whole thing. Yeah. Is it a love story? Well, at the end, he says, you know, I'm sorry, reader. I, you know, I wanted to make it a love story, but it, it fell apart. I think it still was, though. I think the way... He phrased it either there or in an interview I read was that it was more like about coming to love yourself again. Hmm. One of the things he brought up several times was kind of the self-hating nature of all the shame that is pushed on to black people. Like he was ashamed of his skin so much that like 
wanted to disappear. Like his parents wanted to protect him from his skin by disappearing. Even within the community, like he was bullied all the time by other black kids because he was too black. And that kind of self-hating psychology that that's kind of pushed on you by people shaming you for what you are. And then so towards the end of the book, he's saying he's coming to love himself again to counteract that. So in that sense, you said it was maybe a love story still, just not like yeah. a romance like boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy finds girl again. Well, and what you're saying, too, I uh, flagged a quotation from the book that I think is right on that topic is where you, the uh, author is saying, I'm not sure black people can be happy in this world. There's just too much of a backstory of sadness that's always clawing at their heels. And no matter how hard you try to outrun it, life always comes through with those reminders, letting you know that more than anything, you're just a part of an exploited people and a denied destiny. And all you can do is hate your past and by proxy, hate yourself. Yeah. Which, which came just before his maybe realization of how he can start to cope. Maybe. I don't know. There's a lot in there in this book. I found it very evocative emotionally. Which is hard, which again was why the humor was appreciated. I particularly enjoyed the Nicolas Cage cameo <laughs> in the middle. What are your guys' favorite Nicolas Cage movies? <laughs> oh, man. Um, he has a quite the back catalog. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say Willy's Wonderland. Oh, I've never even heard of that one. It's, uh, it's like a horror comedy. And I saw it on a referred to on a YouTube channel that kind of makes fun of different action movies and is is very fond of Nick Cage. And uh, then I watched the actual movie and it's it's completely bizarre. He doesn't speak a word the entire time. It was kind of amazing. It's completely absurdist and uh, weird and yeah. I mean, you'll have to watch it yourself to judge it in any way. Horror is not really my thing, so I might give that a pass. Mm, yeah. Okay. Then you're missing out. It's, it's kind of cool. Well, the, the first movie that came to mind for me was Raising Arizona. That's my second choice. Because I think yeah. maybe it's the movie I've seen the most that has uh, Nicolas Cage in it. But man, talk about a uh, roller coaster career. I mean, the, the guy goes from winning an Oscar. What did he win an Oscar for? Uh, Moonstruck. Did he? Yeah, I think so. Oh. We'll have to fact check that. And then, in, in, you know, to the to remake of The Wicker Man. I mean, what ha- I, I think what happened is that he ran into some financial difficulty in about the mid-2000s. And so maybe he became all of a sudden a whole lot less picky in his movie roles because he had to, he had to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, but it seems like... I, I saw someone's interpretation once, or their, their idea was that he just likes challenges acting-wise. So someone will present him with a movie, and it'll be a terrible movie, and he'll think, I can make this work. Yeah, like face-off. Right, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of good, actually. Yeah, I remember yeah. seeing it in, in, in a super cheesy it. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watching him and Travolta try to play each other, <laughs> yeah. playing each other yeah. was was fun in a very cheesy way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, but uh, I thought he really captured the way Nicolas Cage talks in interviews in that conversation they had. I remember uh, another movie he was in called Snake Eyes. I don't know if you ever saw, saw that. It's, yeah. I remember it was like technically a very interesting movie because it's all about this like like a big high stakes boxing match, and then someone is killed at it. But the way it's filmed, uh, it uses a lot of these really long takes. So technically, it looks like it's like a one steady cam shot, you know. And those types of little technical things are super fun to watch. Have you guys heard of this movie that came out last year called? Unbearable weight of massive talent. 
Yes. I've heard of it. I have not seen it. I have not seen it, but it's a movie where Nicolas Cage plays a version of himself Mm -hmm. where he's an actor, but he's kind of uh, disillusioned with the Hollywood uh, scene. So he decides he's going to retire, but his agent who's played by Neil Patrick Harris convinces him to take a job at this deranged billionaire who lives like on an island off of Spain, played by Pedro Pascal, mm-hmm. who is a apparently a Nicolas Cage super fan, and so he's just invited to go there to like make it. in real life. He's a Nicolas Cage no, super fan. I, well, he may be, but, okay. I, but his character, <laughs> okay. his character in the movie uh, is a uh, huge fan, and so in, he has to make an appearance at his birthday party, which he does for for the money. And, and then, but he gets involved in it. Like it's a weird, like it turns out this guy might be into like in, international drug smuggling. And so it kind of becomes like an action movie. Hmm. Uh, yeah. I've only seen the trailer for it. Yeah. Uh, it looks like it. I was watching it. Like, yeah, I would, I would watch that. <laughs> anyway, so obviously we all enjoyed the uh, Nicolas Cage cameo. Yeah. It was so funny when, when he appeared and he was identified as Nicolas Cage. I could definitely hear Nicolas Cage's voice when totally. he was talking. You know, like yeah. I used to feel like kind of like you were talking about reading yeah. that Steve Martin book. Uh, like I, is that something you talked about on the podcast or is that before? <laughs> I think that, that was before. before. Yeah. He even has like these very Nicolas Cage mannerisms that I could that I could picture. Like yeah. even just like his posture and how he would be on sitting on the plane. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. I like it towards the end of it where where I, I can't remember does the author ask for a for a photo or, or something and he says don't don't ruin this don't do that <laughs> yeah <laughs> don't right. spoil this moment yeah don't spoil this moment don't ask, don't spoil it by asking me questions I can't answer yeah 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 it was it was it oddly like was appropriate in this book I thought to have well, a Nicolas Cage uh, cameo it, it totally fit in with the air of unreality that a lot of it had which again I think it was like an essential part of the book just. Some things are so heavy that you have to disconnect from them in order to process them or to do anything with them. And if that means Nicolas Cage is on your plane and wants your autograph and wants to drop a few words of wisdom on you, then <laughs> that's what happens. I did feel like towards the end it was more talking about the issues, like just kind of laying them out. Talking, not showing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of showing leading up to that. But towards the end, it's kind of like, okay, we've done enough showing also, here's the thing, mm-hmm. you know? Again, here's the thing. Yeah, here's the thing. If you missed it before, mm-hmm. here it is again. And in the end, yeah, he's kind of talking, like, in the end, the book, the narrative kind of falls apart a little bit. Like, it becomes really clear that it's a it's a meta novel. It's, like, it's about a thing. And uh, I saw uh, an interview with him where he was saying when he wrote it, he thought it was going to fail. He thought it was going to be a complete failure. No one would read it. Might not even get anyone to publish it. And he was really surprised that it took off and really surprised that people responded to it as they did. And I kind of feel you can kind of almost feel that in the book, like towards the end, it kind of feels like, yeah, he kind of ran out of steam and he wasn't sure where to go after after everything. Like, how do you wrap it up? At least that's how it felt to me at the end. It's like kind of like the author was saying at the end. Yeah, I, I don't know what to do with this anymore. But that's also it. Like. Sometimes when a novel deals with a heavy topic, you kind of want to finish that has a satisfying resolution. Like, here's where we go from here, or here's a situation where it worked out. But in this one, it's like, no, it just keeps happening. Like, I'm telling you about it, but it just keeps happening. You're not going to stop just because I told you about it. It's going to keep happening. So it's kind of a downer (laughs) that way, but also no other way to deal with it authentically. And we've talked about how there's like this repetitive kind of nature of the book and how we feel like it's kind of hitting us over the head with something and it's uh, telling us, not showing us. And to me, 
I had the sort of image of like a like a coaster or a napkin on a table, and and someone puts one drink down on it, and then takes it up and takes a drink, and it leaves just a tiny mark. And then someone puts the, another drink down and brings it up, and it's slightly more. And then just a drink after drink after drink until like the circle is dark and is is not going to dry. And to me, that was sort of like what this book was. Like all these incidences were like this stain on this on this napkin. Just it's so ingrained in the culture that uh, it's, it's going to keep happening and it's not going to go away. And it, it's repetitive because it is repetitive. And tomorrow we're going to wake up and we're going to read about another story of this happening again and again yeah. and again. And there is no wrap up to it. There's, you know, which again, is a downer. Yes. Yes, it is. But that's just it. It's facts. You know, it's a hell of a book. Yeah. It's something you can count on as being reality and not imagination. So definitely not escapist fiction, even though there's a lot of escaping in it. Mm-hmm. We could probably keep going on a bit, but uh, we should probably wrap up for time. Any final kind of thoughts or statements? I feel like I've said everything I needed to say. Yeah, yeah. I feel yeah. like there are so many like little moments that we could we could talk about, <laughs> but we we mentioned briefly the uh, the media trainer yeah. scene uh, again. I don't know. I mean, there's a whole theme about, you know, the commodification of a writer that we didn't get into. But, exactly. I was thinking yeah. of that, too. And, and, and like the business of selling a book versus writing a book and yeah. selling yourself as an author versus being an author and just writing. And there's all those kinds of interesting sort of insights and that come up that are not necessarily tied to race, but tied to the publishing industry. And he kind of yeah. quite a few kind of scenes that are lampooned. Yeah, I uh, I watched an interview with, with Jason Mott. I don't know if either of you saw it, the one where he's on the Today Show. And it's like, it's a six minute clip. It's your typical morning show with like bright lights and bubbly hosts. And they have this panel of their book club members. It's like a virtual panel. And they're all these white ladies. And they ask him questions. And he says, oh, thank you. That's such a great question. And he repeats the question and he answers it. And they talk about, you know, the hosts are like, oh, this is such a funny book. But, it, you know, it, it talks about some really important themes, you know, just like totally glossing over the very dark, heavy aspect of this book. And it was just it was it was like a parody of Wow. Of something that had happened in the book. I saw that same one. Yeah. And as I was watching that, I was thinking, it's just like out of the book. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly like that. He's answering. The, so what is the book about, Jason? You know, oh, great question. Let me tell yeah. you. A hell of a book is about. Yeah. And, and you know, it's like, and when you wrote this, was it hard emotionally writing it? Like, like all these kind of, and it's like, did you read the book? Yeah. <laughs> did you read the book? Like, like, I think they legitimately did read the book, but it's mm-hmm. just the fact that it's morning TV, you know? They're not going to yeah. be talking about black children getting shot in the street. Yeah. They're going to be talking about the writer's madcap adventures on his tour, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know? but it was like a perfect compliment to reading the yeah. book. <laughs> yeah. You know what they say, there's a lot of truth in fiction because you can say things that aren't like factual, but that are still true in a meaningful way. And I think he accomplished that very thoroughly. And I don't think it's necessarily a book everyone will like, but I think it's definitely worth reading. Maybe we'll just kind of leave it hanging there like that, (laughs) uh, just like the book itself. It's a hell of a book. (laughs) Yeah. Read it. And and we didn't even make parallels between the situation in the U.S. and the situations in Canada, where we're, as we write this, I voted this morning, and if 
this will come out after the election's done. So if you voted, thank you for voting. I voted. Yay. But also we had a party that ran a campaign thing specifically about not doing a thing that indigenous people want done and just made it a, put it on a billboard. There's no parodying that. It's like it happens here, different people, same thing. Yeah, a lot of parallels between the black experience in America and the indigenous experience in Canada. So there's another place we can draw lessons from. Mm -hmm. But let us leave it there and we will move on to our next segment. Can you tell me a book I would also like? My book is the book Friday Black by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. It's a collection of short stories, and much like Hell of a Book, it deals with racism and Black identity. But here we also get quite a lot of themes of consumerism. The stories are quite dystopian. They present a future that's plausible, if horrific and bizarre. They're very George Saunders-ish. Um, <laughs> and uh, Saunders was actually his thesis advisor when he attended Syracuse University. So you can really, really see the influence there. Like a lot of short stories, it's a bit uneven, but the first story, The Finkelstein Five, is just, it's dynamite. It's about this white man who kills five black children with a chainsaw. He decapitates them, mm -hmm. and he gets acquitted by an all-white jury because he, while he admits to the killing, he says that it was in self-defense. And in protest, a bunch of black youths go around killing white people while chanting the names of the victims. So pretty dark and disturbing, but really, really great. There's another story about a Black Friday rush from the perspective of an employee who watches corpses get swept aside casually in a sea of desperate shoppers. There's a story about a young man who's an actor in this type of amusement park where players get to have a confrontation on the street with a black man who they are encouraged to use deadly force to stop. So pretty dark, but really great, really worth picking up just for that first story. And I noticed that Adeje Brenya has a new book that just came out recently. It's called Chain Gang All-Stars, and it was nominated for the National Book Award, which hell of a book won. So kind of nice circular yeah. moment there. Mm -hmm. You know, even the descriptions of those short stories sounded very George Saunders. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. And uh, the Friday Black story in that collection, we, uh, we read it, uh, Tales of Night last year uh it actually was the one right around black friday so it was uh yeah again well received and super disturbing yeah mm -hmm. my pick for a book that you may also enjoy is fight club by chuck palaniak now there are i thought oddly enough maybe a lot of similarities between hell of a book and fight club when i went back to revisit it the main character is unnamed in both books they talk directly to the reader, as they also in Hell of a Book. And also, there's a lot of commentary on modern consumerism and culture. So just to give a quick overview, the, the main character, he works at an unfulfilling job. He just cannot seem to sleep at night. He's in, he is an insomniac. And he his doctor tells him that there's really nothing wrong with him, and that if he really wants to see suffering, he should go to uh, self-help groups. And so he starts to do this, even though he doesn't have cancer, he goes to cancer support groups and he's able to get sort of a contact high off of the sharing that happens. And that helps him for a while until he starts noticing another person who appears at all of these support groups, who obviously is not ill themselves physically, and her name's Marla. And she kind of ruins his ability to satisfy that that need. And so they, they break up 
the, the support groups so they don't go to the same ones. And that seems to work for a while, too. Later on, he befriends a character, a guy, uh, Tyler Durden, who sort of represents everything um, that the narrator isn't. He's sort of impulsive. He doesn't have a lot of respect for authority. And the two decide to start a fight club where men gather and beat each other up to try to satisfy some kind of primal urge. <laughs> and, uh, and it goes on and on, and there are twists and turns. But yeah, I, is it a good book? I don't know. Chuck Palahniuk has gone on to write a bunch of other things. I think he's a bit of a one-trick pony, maybe. But Fight Club is the one that started it for him. So if you're interested, that that's my pick. That's a hearty endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I wasn't sure where to go with a uh, book recommendation. So I, I listed a couple of things that maybe would connect with you. The first two I was going to say would were Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut and Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, because he kind of obliquely referred to both of them in the novel. And those are both stories where the lead character is disconnected from reality and is having difficulty dealing with it largely because of trauma and both these cases the trauma related to war and in slaughterhouse five the billy pilgrim the lead character is disconnected in time and experiences time in a disconnected way for he just jumps from one moment in time to another throughout his life and in catch 22 the story is just told non-linearly but it's a character who is in war and uh he's a like a bomber pilot and he wants to stop fighting because he doesn't trust his commanders or his country anymore he feels and they just keep extending his tour of duty and catch 22 the phrase refers to the fact that if you're sane and healthy they will want you to fly missions but no sane person would want to go on a bombing mission so you have to be a little crazy to go on the bombing mission but if you tell someone you're crazy and you shouldn't be on the bombing mission then you're sane because you know you don't want to be on the bombing mission no one who's doing the bombing missions should be and anyone who tries not to can't leave so you're stuck so both of these kind of are about the human condition and the absurdities we find ourselves in and the, the difficulty of processing any of that uh, the third book that i thought of that might connect for talking more about the black experience in america is uh, the immortal life of henrietta Lacks by rebecca Sloot, which we have read before on the podcast it's not the same thing as this book, but it's another example of the interaction between black people in America and white people in America and the system, which in this case, while not overtly hostile, is also negligent in the way that it interacts. Um, I don't know the right word to describe their, that, but indifferent. Dismissive? Dismissive, yeah. Even with people who aren't trying to be dismissive or indifferent, still can be and still can perpetuate the system. And it's contrasted with the tremendous benefits to science that came from one woman's DNA, Henrietta Lacks's DNA, uh, and her cancer treatment. Yeah, that's a little vague, but all three of these books, to me, kind of connect with Hell of a Book. With that said, we will now jump on to everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. When we share words or phrases that got to us some way or other, who's got a word? My word is a very last minute thing. I was having a hard time coming up with a word. So when in doubt, uh, go for the obvious. So my word this month is hell. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not going to necessarily talk about all the meanings of what hell is because cultures around the world have different ideas of afterlife. But I'm just talking about more about the word and where does it come from and, and what does it mean. So you can trace its origins back to Old English, Old Norse and Old German, either hell, H-E-L or hellia, H-E-L-L-I-A. It's related to the word hell, which means hidden. And so you get the word seller as well from that. And I thought that was kind of interesting because in hell of a book, a lot of what the book was about was hidden until we got to the end. Uh, It was really about the unnamed narrator's mother. So in some ways, it literally was a hell of a book in that it was not revealed to us until the very end. But how did it come to be associated with a fire and brimstone place? Well, apparently we can thank the King James Bible for that, because in the older versions of the biblical uh, texts, there were a couple of different concepts for a place in the afterlife that were taken uh, from the Hebrew people. There was Gehenna and also Sheol. Uh, Gehenna was more of like a fire and uh, brimstone place, where Sheol was sort of just a, a place of the dead. But good old King James just use the word hell for both of them. So the distinction between Gehenna and Sheol got lost in the King James Version. And um, now it's sort of a catch-all for the nether realm of the devil and the demons. I got that from Merriam-Webster, in which condemned people suffer everlasting punishment. But interestingly also, there are many meanings as well, right? It can just be general terms of abuse, like you could say, the hell with it. Or maybe not a metaphysical place of suffering by a real place of suffering like you've heard the saying war is hell or chaos right all hell breaks loose but then you could also use it like for fun and games right like oh it was a hell of a time or just for the hell of it so i don't know i don't know hell that's my word could have done better i suppose that's a hell of a a word i didn't really (laughs) give a hell this week this month uh hell Okay, I have something more fun than that, I think. (laughs) Um, We didn't, well, I guess we briefly talked about the cinematic quality of this book, but we didn't talk about the film noir properties of it, which Mm. is where my word comes from. So my word is moxie, which is a word that I think you associate with um, that 20th century film noir, but that also pops up in this book. And so moxie, by definition, it means a few things. It can mean energy or pep. It can mean courage or determination, or it can mean know-how. And the word actually comes from a brand of carbonated beverage that was among the first mass-produced soft drinks in the U.S. It was actually created in 1884 as a patent medicine called moxie nerve food and was said to be effective against paralysis, softening of the brain, nervousness, and insomnia. And it rose to prominence partially due to its groundbreaking marketing efforts um, at the time. So it was advertised as nerve food, which would strengthen the nervous system and was very healthful and would strengthen and invigorate. So you can see how the word moxie came to mean those things. At some point, the medicine bit was dropped. It was sold as a drink. Soda water was added to the formula. The product's name was changed to Beverage Moxie Nerve Food at one point. And the brand still exists to this day. It's actually very popular in New England and Pennsylvania. It was actually designated the official soft drink of the state of Maine in 2005, signed into law by the governor. 
there's a Moxie Festival in Lisbon, Maine on the second weekend in July. Uh, tagline, three days of peace, love, and Moxie. <laughs> um, and it includes a parade, a Moxie recipe contest, and a Moxie chugging contest. Um, <laughs> and the Matthews Museum in Union, Maine has a whole collection dedicated to Moxie. So there you go. All, all the stuff about Moxie. That is fascinating. Isn't it? Yeah. We'll, yeah. Uh, we'll link to the Moxie Festival website and the Matthews Museum website because you can, you can really get into it. You got a lot of Moxie, kid. My word for this month, or I guess pair of words, they're connected. Uh, hypnagogia, which is connected to hypnopompia. So hypnagogia is a transitional state between wakefulness and sleep. And hypnopompia is the opposite. It's the transition from sleep to wakefulness. These transition states are interesting because uh, something like 70% of people will experience something called uh, hypnagogic hallucinations or hypnopompic hallucinations, depending on when they happen. These can be visual or auditory and can even include movement. Uh, sometimes people have muscle jerks at that time. I actually experience that periodically where I'll be like nodding off to sleep and suddenly my body will jerk and I'll be fully awake and I won't know why. I've experienced hypnogogic hallucinations myself uh, and they can be very realistic. I remember one time my wife was on a trip and uh, I heard her voice very clearly as I was waking up uh, saying my name. And of course it was impossible because she was in another country at the time. The word kind of fits in with me with this book where he's kind of always in a transitional state. And I think initially when he was talking about Soot's imaginative case, it's always started at like sunset. Uh, so kind of in that transitional state from day to night. And so it kind of relates hypnagogia. Hmm. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're going to read and discuss Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. Nearly 25 years after housekeeping, Marilyn Robinson returns with an intimate tale of three generations from the Civil War to the 20th century, a story about fathers and sons and the spiritual battles that still rage at America's heart. In the words of Kirkus, it is a novel as big as a nation, as quiet as thought, and moving as prayer. Matchless and towering, Gilead tells the story of America and will break your heart. Have comments or book suggestions for us? Send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service. Maybe leave us a review and tell all your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find Time to Read. Carol Shields Auditorium at Millennium. No, we're not. Which, mm. where's my, where's, where is, where my word comes from? Do you want to know what movie Nicolas Cage won an Academy Award for? Yeah. 1996. It wasn't Moonstruck. Leaving Las Vegas. Oh. Ah, yeah. And then he was a nominee for adaptation in 2003. Oh, right. That was another movie. That was really great. Yeah.
Hmm. So nothing for Moonstruck. Hmm. I think Cher won for Moonstruck. Oh, okay. Yeah. Moonstruck was Bernadette's favorite movie for a long time, or at least she really wanted me to watch it. You should watch it. Oh, I did. I did. Oh, okay. Yeah. My wife wanted me to watch it. Of course <laughs> I watched it. <laughs> 